Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. Please consider doing me a favor and pre-ordering my new book uh, from Coach House Books, The National Gallery. Uh, it contains sonnets for Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies in the manner of Rilke, but for a dead iPhone, uh, and other strange missives from yours truly, the poet laureate of hell. So go to thenationalgallery.ca for more information. That's thenationalgallery.ca. Thanks. So I'm just here with Nick Burns, and uh, Nick... You've done so much work. Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. I'm old. What would you say that if you had to just quickly summarize your experience? In, well, in... I, I mean, I've been called a jack of all trades. Winnipeg's a small market. Uh, I'm an artist and writer, so I've done pretty much everything that you can think of. I've uh, illustrated, uh, written and drawn comics. Uh, I've uh, worked for major companies like Marvel and DC as a colorist, uh, writer. Um, I've uh, done radio when I lived in the Arctic. Uh, I uh, have uh, written without credit uh, screen uh, screenplays or rewritten them. Uh, storyboards are a large part of my business. If you go to my IMDb page, Internet Movie Database, you can see uh, 60 plus credits there. Uh, if you go to uh, the Grand Comic Books Database, you can see the comic work that I've done. I've written and drawn educational comics also while I was in the Arctic. A lot of different stuff, graphic design, um, uh, yeah, I don't know, uh, anything, everything that uh, my skill set seems useful for doing. Now, and I know your work from a few things, but where I kind of first really encountered you was, I wrote a book on John Pays. Ah, yes. Um, John Pays' Crime Wave, which right. is the title of the book. <laughs> yeah. It's very creatively called John Pays' People will, who know John will know Crime Wave. Yeah, yeah. and you did a lot of uh, visual artwork yeah. for that. Yeah, and John and I uh, started out together at art school at the University of Manitoba. Uh, that's where we met, uh, life drawing uh, or uh, drawing class, and uh, hit it off very well because he was a comic book uh, guy interested in comics, which was unusual at art school in the uh, 70s when painting was supposed to be dead and artists uh, at art school were supposed to be interested in, uh, not in representational art, but in uh, abstraction or performance art or video art or uh, performance art. And as I say, painting was supposed to be dead. So John and I hit it off really well. We did a comic strip together in the Manitoban, the student newspaper, and then I did some work on his animated short uh, and also on uh, his uh, sh short films and then on Crime Wave too. Was that the short that was up for the British Award or was that a different short? Or He did a series of them. Yeah, he did a bunch of them and I'm not sure. Some of them I worked on, some of them I didn't. Three Worlds and Nick were a collection of three mm -hmm. uh, shorts and I did a little bit of stuff on some of them, I think. Uh, again, we're talking years and years ago, so a lot of it I'm not clear on anymore. But certainly Crime stuff. Wave I did work on. I painted a glass painting for him. I did uh, other uh, art department stuff. Uh, um, yeah. And what? so you've been working for quite a long time. In, yeah, in 40, 40 years uh, or, or more, really, as, a, as an artist and writer. 
um, yeah, it's it's what I do. This may be a weird kind of question to kind of jump out of the gate with, but what have you learned in all that time? Like, it's a very big question, but yeah. like, how have things changed, and what have you really? Oh, a ton more than we can fit into. What would you tell uh, yourself? You know, yeah, yeah. Back in the seventies, I was I was worried you were going to ask now. me that question. I mean, <laughs> certainly, I was. I would tell myself that comics are going to be taken seriously; that uh, they're going to turn into a respected art form. I kind of. I should have known that, really, because in 73, uh, the Winnipeg Art Gallery actually had an exhibit of uh, comics art at the art gallery. It was really revolutionary for its time, uh, and the catalog that uh, went with it as well. And then a few years after that, 76, I think, Starenko had a solo show there. So the idea that comics were art was something that I was confident at stating even when I went to art school. And to be fair, the, the profs that I had at art school, uh, they didn't disagree that comics were an art form. They just thought that it wasn't a direction that the people they were teaching should go in, uh, that the galleries shouldn't be dedicating space to it. Again, it's what allowed people like Lichtenstein to get away with essentially swiping Kirby and other uh, comic artists' work and turning them into uh, gallery art that sold for millions. They were comics were considered a, a, a separate thing from uh, from mainstream culture, from uh, certainly from uh, high culture. So, how has that shift in how we look at comics actually changed what it's like to be a comics artist? And well, in it, yeah, it's it's improved in that certainly when you tell somebody that you're interested in comics, people are genuinely interested now, whereas they'd look down their nose at you you know, 40 years ago, um, it's almost impossible to try and put across how different people's attitudes are to pop culture in general today compared to the past. Um, it's hard. I, I remember talking to my, my daughter's 20, almost 20, and uh, she, uh, when she was younger, you know, I remember she was like going to the library getting some comic books and stuff, and I remember saying to her, like, you know, it used to be like if you were reading comics in school you were you were a loser <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> like, if you, you, know, if, you wore a weird, if you wore a captain america t-shirt to school you yeah. get beaten up yeah yeah for sure. and now it's of course you know it's, it's, it's like i say it's hard to emphasize how much things have changed yeah, yeah. in terms of pop culture's that's right it's acceptance by just the mainstream public. yeah yeah and it's it's an industry that people respect and take seriously now because you know it's it's a career uh, you can work in the entertainment industry here in Winnipeg now, uh, where you couldn't uh, 40 years ago. Um, when I was a member of the film group, it uh, was hard to make movies, and there was no film industry here, at least certainly not like it is now. There were a few independent filmmakers, John Pays being one of them, but he was a trailblazer. And so that's one of the things that's changed. Three Worlds of Nick, uh, his his three short films when he yeah. put them together, it was feature length. Yeah, and that was the first Prairies feature to play at the Toronto Festival. Festivals. Yeah, yeah, and again, you know, all credit to John for actually you know making that happen. Uh, well, has, has anything gotten harder? Like, uh, to to what degree has the shifts in the industry or shifts in the culture made it more has it made it more difficult to be a working artist in any way or do you well, think it's been generally positive yeah I mean obviously for me it's been super positive uh, I mean simply by having the uh, set of marketable skills and being in the right place at the right time I was able to I'm able to have a, a career um, a lot of those uh, 
ecological or economic niches within the industry are filled now. They were, it was all wide open back then. What we used to talk about in the 70s, you know, in terms of what the future would be like, is really interesting to compare with what actually happened. In the 70s, uh, pre-internet, pre-500 channel universe, pre-film um, on, TV on demand, etc., we used to think that if we got a few more channels out there, we'd all have a better understanding of each other because we'd all understand each other's point of view. You know, women would have their own network and they'd be able to talk about women's issues and we'd understand better. And the left would have a bunch of channels so we'd all understand the left wing of society better. And the right would have a bunch and they, we'd understand the right wing better. What happened, of course, was that all those things happened, but instead of a, uh, people absorbing a plurality of viewpoints, we tend to silo or go into our own little bubbles with social media and movies and magazines, if we still read them, and, every, and television that reinforce our worldview rather than hearing or seeing or reading somebody else's worldview. And that, plus a bunch of other things that have happened within uh, federal law in the United States, the uh, under Reagan, they took down the... Uh, what was it called? The Communications Fairness Act was scrapped. In any case, a bunch of other things happened. Cable TV came out, and people were allowed to say any, pretty much anything they wanted without having to have balance, what was known as balanced journalism, which was uh, an FCC regulation in the States until the 80s. So the time since then has changed and made for a lot more strident uh, Viewpoints on both the left and right and identity politics and everything in between. One thing that I think has really shifted, I see a lot whenever I teach university classes, which I do from time to time, you know, I, I have a really hard time because no, there's no common knowledge anymore. Like no. You can't assume people know the Cold War happened or they don't even necessarily even all know who Hitler was. Like, yeah. like you just can't assume common knowledge. Whereas like when I was a kid and you know, it used right. to be like, you'd, yeah, there were three, four channels. You'd, one of them was French, you know? So yeah. like we all knew the same things, what, like it or not. And yeah. there was, there really was a clear mainstream and mm-hmm. there was these fringes of the mainstream. That's right. And I feel now there is no mainstream, but at the same time, yeah, everything's just this fragment. You have a sort of a mainstream, but it's not like it was. It's not like a thing everybody knows. Like so you can just be outside the mainstream completely and not know anything that's going on in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you can walk around without no real, not really knowing anything that the person beside you across right. the street knows. Yep. And there's strengths to that, uh, but there's also this problem as you say of like having a shared language or a way to be able to communicate that's true and getting down to like trying to be a you know writer working in the world i find it a problem as a writer because you can't assume the audience knows a particular thing or get a particular reference yeah you have to walk a weird line of like you don't want to be um like just throwing information at them all the time and being too expository or or whatever you need to really quickly convey often a lot of information and catch people up very in, in kind of weird subtle ways that's yeah. not going to annoy people <laughs> so yeah. I'm just curious to know like how do you handle writing um, well this is sort of coming around to a different question but when you're writing for yourself versus writing for some someone else like how do you approach dealing with this audience um, gap where you don't necessarily know like who the audience is anymore because even if you have a demographic 
you know, that you can say, well, you know, males, you know, teens are going to be reading this. Even if you have a demographic like that, they don't necessarily know all the same things anymore. Right. Yeah, that's a massive question. So how do we unpack the answer in such a way that it's comprehensible? Okay, I think we have to start with this idea that you were quite right about, that uh, there's no common knowledge anymore. And uh, people like, uh, are you serious? Um, what's his real name? Ken Goffman, one of the founders of Boing Boing magazine, has, has talked and written about this. Um, really, uh, people my age are probably the last generation to work with what we'll call, for lack of a better term, a consensual reality. So it's even more profound than and what you're talking about. If you think the world's flat and you've got all these YouTube videos and other things that tr- prove for you to your satisfaction that the world is flat and I think the world is round and I'm writing about, say, science fiction or something that describes a round world, uh, it's, you're right, it's highly problematic. And this is something that uh, we as a society are gonna have to deal with. Um, I don't see a solution to it, frankly. The advent of uh, the internet, the relaxation of the uh, balanced journalism regulations that I described earlier means that anybody can say anything they want about pretty much anything, and if it resonates with people, they'll find an audience for it. And some of these conspiracy theories and uh, anti-science viewpoints of the world uh, resonate with people for a whole variety of uh, very profound and uh, deep psychological reasons. And there's no talking them out of it because you bring up something like, but if the earth is flat, here's these pictures we took. And And it's not rational. That's right. And the thing is, um, there's a book called Enlightenment 2.0 that talks about why this is a problem. And the idea that we need a... We need a, a, another wave of uh, critical thinking that helps us sort through all these various uh, belief systems and uh, pseudosciences and so on that we're now confronted with and that are being given equal weight to what we would historically have described as sort of the dominant cultural position, the mainstream, if you will. Um, and there is a mainstream out there, but it's becoming increasingly superficial. Um, it's And it's difficult because critical thinking, the way I was taught, maybe the way you were taught too, logic, um, rhetoric, these things aren't taught. Debate, these well, things aren't taught say, in school. I was actually taught it, which I think is the difference. Well, exactly. <laughs> and those tools are, are very useful in terms of parsing out what's actually going on in, your, in the world around you. And without those tools, you're kind of at sea you're uh, susceptible to believing pretty much anything if you don't have a way of thinking critically about what you're being told or shown. So kind of back So the Yeah, sorry. So that's the, f- that's the first half of the answer <laughs> to your, sure. your very complicated question. How you write for that new audience, if you will, there's a bunch of different ways of doing it. Uh, one way that I see quite a bit is you simply write using all the given tropes of the genre you're writing in. This, is, makes, this makes people feel comfortable. It's what they're going to the genre to read anyway. We'll stick with reading because you're a writer of, of text, prose. The other approach is to uh, go back to an earlier form of writing. 
uh, impression, right, impressionistically. Um, people had to have, say, the way Thomas Hardy wrote, because they didn't have images in their head. So Hardy would write page after page on what a beechnut tree looked like. Um, some audiences may or may not have the patience for that, but that's another way of hopefully writing, obviously, very beautiful prose in such a way as your audience will go along and immerse themselves in the world that you're trying to create if you're writing fiction. Um, the other thing is, is to write more simply. Uh, in other words, don't make pop culture references. It's difficult to do, but find your metaphors in other ways. Um, I mean, I was going to use a William Gibson example uh, from Neuromancer, the first line. The, what is this? The sky was the color of a dead TV station. Mm-hmm. But I'm not even sure how long that metaphor would hold up if people aren't watching TV anymore. Well, but, I've got a, my new book coming out actually has a poem about how the TV has gone from being static to being a blue screen to being this whispery darkness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where are yeah. we going is the next line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, and it's a good question. And of course, because I work a lot in the film industry, it's something that we're asking ourselves all the time. You should see the look on cinematographers' faces when they're told you have to shoot so that it's that the image is visible, comprehensible on a screen of a, of a phone. You know, as opposed to 25 feet across. I mean, you don't uh, compose a an image, whether it's static or moving, in the same way for an image the scale of a phone screen compared to, say, a large TV screen or compared to a large movie screen. Do you think a writer really needs then? Like, what do you what do you think a a young writer, let's say, who's just kind of starting out and thinking, you know, I'm interested in comics, I'm interested in film, maybe I don't know exactly what I want to do, but um, I want to try these different things. And, and maybe they're kind of leaning towards, let's say, comics. Like, where do you think they need to start? As a writer? As a writer, or even just in terms of kind of trying to get in, get their foot in the door a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that I would suggest is know your genre. If you're I mean, genre traditionally has been a foot in the door. And I, and by genre, I mean everything from the lowest of the low. Uh, well, it means the lowest of the low. So, for instance, a lot of people in the uh, 20s and 30s and 40s got their foot in the door as writers by writing pulp, writing the absolute worst, the least well-regarded fiction that existed on the newsstands back then. And they wrote comic books, which, again, weren't highly regarded. Um, and they wrote pretty much anything they, that anybody would pay them to write. And then they worked their way up from there. They uh, developed their craft. They made mistakes. Comics were like vaudeville. It was a place to do it as well as you could until you were good enough to do something better. And, you, and they moved up the food chain. I'm not sure if that system actually exists anymore. Uh, you see that people are sort of ghettoized. Uh, I know people now who have been writing badly for decades and are limping along. They have a day job, and they just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. What do you think those mistakes are? One thing I see a lot is they have very ambitious. Like, so somebody will start, they're like, I'm going to be a writer, and they'll, I've got a 10-book series planned. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, I, I often say, well, want to say to them, like, why don't you try writing, like, a, a 
flash fiction and yeah. see, you know, yeah. see how that goes. Or even just learning writing skills, like a lot of times people want to jump to like, they're going to write a novel. Mm-hmm. And I often say, well, why don't you write like an article, a re- book review, yep. you know, and they often don't see the connection. But like where I learned the most was when I also worked at the Manitoba and where I learned the most about writing was having to have, you know, we had to get that paper done every week. Yep. Yeah. You know, and you had to write something mm-hmm. uh, by 4 p.m. Exactly. And again, that's a great resource as well. Uh, if you're in a deadline situation, nothing like a deadline to sharpen the mind. Well, and you learn skills, right? Like, I, like yes, what, you what I find is, you, you, what I learned eventually when I was younger was I learned that I could write. <laughs> if that may, and it sounds kind of stupid to say it that way, but it, it's like it took me a while to really learn that. Oh, I didn't need to have a great idea. I didn't need to have like inspiration. I didn't need to have anything except for like time to sit down and do it. And I could take anything if I once I had the skills down. Like I could take anything and kind of make it interesting. Yeah, and again, you have transfer a transferable skill, right? Mm. So when I started off, uh, my earliest writing was like most kids. I was writing for school, and uh, I again I was a precocious uh, reader and writer. Um, you know, by grade seven, I was reading and writing at a university one level according to tests that they gave us in school. And fortunately, my uh, teachers in school recognized this and were able to engage, keep me engaged in what we were reading. I was one of those nerds that loved Shakespeare in, in high school and loved reading on Neville Shoots on the beach. Uh, I hated The Hobbit <laughs> because I was reading hard science fiction by then and, uh, and other things, and I didn't have any time for... Uh, uh, you know, uh, little trolls and dwarves and all this stuff. Uh, I was more interested in hard science, hard science fiction. But uh, yeah, by so I was learning my craft uh, at school. They were, uh, and again, they were they marked me harder, and I was told this by my English teachers because they knew I was capable of more. And they, to their credit, they would sometimes let me write my own things, poetry, uh, prose, uh, rather than maybe the exact assignment as given, if I could justify it. And again, they would mark me accordingly because they knew that, they, they saw, I demonstrated that I had more uh, ability in this area than average. So they, they treated me accordingly. But that isn't going to be every student's experience. And it wasn't always my experience either. I remember being hammered in history class because we had to write a... a I, had to, I chose Louis Riel to write about Louis Riel. And at that time, uh, this is again the 70s, uh, Louis Riel was... Uh, well, there were 27 books on Louis Riel. I'm sure there's many more now. But I read them all because I was a fast reader as I, and a precocious reader, as I noted earlier. And then I wrote a re- book report that said, nobody's ever going to know who Louis Riel really was or, or what he was about. There are, the, the historical waters have been muddied so much. You know, uh, one book would say he was insane. One book would say he was a traitor. Another book would say he uh, had uh, uh, he was a religious visionary. One would say he was the founder of the province, which is technically true, I suppose. And all those different narratives, I couldn't see any way that they were going to be resolved. And of course, that battle for Louis Riel was going on within our culture at the same time here in, in Winnipeg, in Manitoba, across Western Canada, for that matter, because Riel had been uh, hung as a traitor by uh, MacDonald, the founder of the country. Uh, and uh, so how do you go about uh, rehabilitating Louis Riel? And that was physically and artistically 
fought over the uh, famous sculpture of Louis Riel. Yeah. The first uh, Louis Riel sculpture in the legislative grounds, uh, where our governor, the seat of our provincial government, was a twisted figure. I forget the name of the artist, my apologies, but he looked like a twisted little dwarf. Also, he had an erection. hope I can say that on your podcast. <laughs> you can say whatever you want on my um, podcast. But uh, needless to say, there was considerable uproar within the uh, Métis community and elsewhere over this, uh, mm. this sculpture for all sorts of reasons, including the ones I outlined. I hope the... Uh, the uh, problem with the uh, founder of the province being portrayed in such a way is understandable. And, of course, eventually they replaced that statue. That statue, if you want to see it, minus the erection, which got broken off at some point, is uh, in St. Boniface uh, by uh, St. Boniface College. And the uh, statue that replaced it on the legislative grounds has the all the tropes of the uh, heroic founder of our province. The head is quite small, the body is quite large, he looks very dignified and respectful, and he looks like people expect the founder of the province sculpture to look like. So there's an example of me being uh, very contrary in my uh, writing uh, over uh, a controversial uh, figure in our history, and uh, and I didn't benefit particularly well <laughs> in terms of the mark I got for that uh, for that particular form of writing. But I was also writing for the student newspaper in uh, in high school, and I was writing for the uh, community newspaper too. I was covering uh, sports uh, for the uh, for the Selkirk Enterprise at the time. And uh, again, as you said earlier, writing is writing. Uh, if you learn to write, meet a deadline, it's a great skill to have in your quiver. Um, and uh, I had to do that. Uh, I had to go cover the game and then write up a report of the game and then get the, the uh, story to the uh, editor before the, print, uh, uh, before the paper was printed. So it was a good skill to have and, and paid me uh, very well in terms of experience. I don't think I got paid any money for doing it, but I was learning. Uh, I was learning at the same time and seeing my work in print and getting feedback from the players and getting feedback from the parents and uh, feedback from the fans. So, yeah. That feedback loop is really important, too. I, it's I crucial. feel like one of the most biggest mistakes people make when they're starting out is they don't put their work out and they don't get the feedback and they don't realize they're so afraid often of bad feedback or rejection or, or whatever it is, negativity, yeah, any type, yeah. that they don't realize that that's what they need. They need well, to fail and they need to figure out what they did wrong. Like it doesn't really matter at those early stages what you did right. <laughs> no, and the thing is, uh, failure is the way you learn. And because we're in a society now that gives out awards for participation medals and is always trying to accentuate the positive, which I completely understand, I mean, I think that's better than stigmatizing people for being unsuccessful. But at the same time, if you're actually trying to improve your craft whether you're trying to become a better athlete or a better writer, there's no point in being told that's great, regardless of what sort of effort and what sort of finished product you've produced. It's important to have constructive criticism, and I stress constructive, because mm -hmm. in the world now of the internet and so forth, it's perfectly easy to get negative criticism or or destructive. cruelty. <laughs> destructive <laughs> Yeah, or destructive yeah. criticism. So again, Go and find out what constructive criticism is, so you know it when you when you get it, and you know when people are just being mean. To keep it simple, 
but that uh, feedback of just you know but you do need just, feedback sure and yeah. I got it and that feedback is crucial because um, I wasn't good when I started out and criticism constructive criticism helped me get better constructive criticism from the editor constructive criticism from the readers constructive criticism for the people I was reporting about the athletes themselves all helped me become a better writer I understood this, the game I was covering better. I understood the craft of writing for a sports report better. And, of course, I was reading other people's sports reports and learning from that, too. What I see, too, is people, they pick a very ambitious project. Like, they're going to write a novel or a novel series, and they, you know, they can't do it. They yeah. fail at it in some yeah, ways. Yeah. And then they get discouraged yeah. and quit. It's like, well, of course you couldn't do that. <laughs> sure. And I, yeah. I get that all the time, too. So what I tell people when they come at me with, you know, they have this plan for a 10-issue or a 10... Uh, a uh, 10-story epic, you know, space opera, whatever it may be, uh, I tell them, do yourself a favor. They don't always listen, by the way, um, but this is what I tell them, is if you're wanting to learn how to write, say, a comic book story, write a three-page comic story, beginning, middle, and end, be, and, it's, and finish it. Or if you're writing prose, I'd say write a short story, 10 pages, you know, uh, something manageable, something where you can fail and then get feedback on it. So you're failing upwards. Mm-hmm. The, there's two ways to succeed at being a creative individual. Two ways to succeed at anything, really. One is to do it and finish it. So that's part of the same thing. If you haven't finished it, it's not done. There's no art until it's finished. I'd like to say... Um, so that's rule one. Rule two, fail upwards. So expect failure. When you first start, if I said, let's go out for a, and run a marathon, you'd look at me quite correctly as if I'm nuts. You haven't trained to run a marathon. You haven't put in the legwork, literally, that's needed, that's required to be able to run a marathon. So you go out there and you don't run a marathon your first time out. You go out there and run what you can run. And you figure out, okay, I can run this much right now and I want to be able to run 26 plus miles for the marathon at this point over here and you figure out what sort of training regime you need to get to being able to run a marathon and it's the same thing with writing start small write something manageable write poetry learn how to be efficient with words you know write short stories write anything that gives you a beginning a middle and end get constructive feedback on it fail upwards do better next time I know it sounds simple, but those are the rules. That's how it's done. Yeah, I like. I, I often say, if you go back and look back in history, like who succeeded and who failed, you know, of all the people who have tried to, you know, be working artists and so on. What the commonality is, if they succeeded, is because they didn't quit and they didn't die. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and or uh, or they got good fast. And yeah. then they died early. You know? And that's, Tragedy. that's my advice. Don't quit and don't die. <laughs> well, that, well, that's good advice in life for life in general, for sure. As I say, it sounds simplistic, but the underlying uh, thing is, you know, people, people quit. You know, I, I've seen so many times, people who are very good often, uh, I've seen people, I've seen a lot of one-book authors, you know, oh, yeah. like friends or yeah. people, you know, that have known that. Yep. They put out one book so they could do it, you know, they proved they could do it. Yep. They had the skills to do yep. it. They had everything to do it, except they quit. Sure, and that doesn't make a career. That no. makes a one-book, one-hit wonder, which is fine too. I mean, if that it's book fine, is if that's what you want. It, well, and if that book is all you have to say, 
mm-hmm. you know, or all you have the time or ability to do in your life. Well, you've got that one book done. You're ahead of the. You're ahead of all those people who never finished. You know, even just finishing a book and never publishing it. Well, it's a disaster. I oh, always say congratulations. Well, sure. How many people even do that? Well, yeah, and this is and uh, or starting. I mean, yeah. you got to start, uh, and you know, you do it to the point where you realize, well, this isn't useless, or sorry, this isn't <laughs> useful. This, you know, you put it in a drawer. You know, I can't tell the number of things I've started and not finished. But uh, I, my advice to people is to start it and finish it. And uh, yeah, I mean, and the reason I, a lot of the stuff <laughs> I didn't finish was just because nobody was willing to pay me to finish it. You know, I put out a pitch. And it didn't catch, it. nobody wanted to pay me for it. I make a living doing this, so i got to go and pitch something else. But at, you, but at your point, position is different. You know, is, at that point, you know, you can start pitching things and get people Well, and this is the advantage about getting good at something, right? People will you, actually ask you to pitch. Yeah. And I have publishers now that I've got a career and that if they, I've got a body of work, small as it is, they'll, um, they'll say to me, we'll publish you if you... Pitch us the right thing. They're they're they've seen enough to know that I can do it. I see people starting out trying to pitch. It's like no, you have to do something. You have to do something first. You yeah. Know, like, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's catch twenty two, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can understand it. You don't want to go to all that work, but what happens is if you don't have a body of work, then how is anybody who is hiring you to do something going to know you're capable of it? They can't take your word for it. Their livelihood depends on knowing that you're capable enough to do the work and then they'll accept your pitch that's the way it, the business works I'd love to talk to you some more I've got to let you go just because I I kind of <laughs> grilled uh, Nick, Nick had just uh, been doing a Super Pulp Science podcast and I just happened to be sitting like across the room uh, doing my own thing and I just kind of grill him dragged him into a podcast here yeah no I've, I've got <laughs> so time he's in a chatty mood but yeah. I've got to go meet uh, go to a meeting right now uh, so i Apologize, but I'd love to have you back on some yeah, other time sure. to talk more. Yeah, I know. And uh, it's so nice for you to talk to us. And uh, yeah. Great. I hope it's useful to neophyte writers. Can people there. find you online in any particular place? Yeah, I've got a website. Uh, they can at least see uh, the drawings that I've done, little bits and pieces of various uh, comics that I've written and drawn. Uh, Nicholas Burns Art, or sorry, nburnsart.com. Don't even know my own website address. nburnsart.com. <laughs> you got to poke around a bit. Uh, it's a creaky old-fashioned website, so you have to uh, do a little hunting, but uh, that'll open up uh, some uh, stories uh, that I've uh, written there. NRA High School, a great scathing satire on uh, gun culture in the United States, for the people who are interested in that, is available for free uh, through uh, my website. Um, where else can they look? They can go to my IMDB page, Nick Burns, and see uh, the various uh, uh, movies that I've worked on in various capacities, at least the uh, credited capacities. Uh, yeah, I think that will give people lots to look through if they're so inclined. Great. So I go to nburns.com. And, uh, nburnsart.com. nburnsart.com. And I'll link to that also. Oh, cool. Thank uh, you. And other things I find on Nick online if you go to writingtherongway.com. So nburnsart.com. And uh, thanks again for talking to us and keep writing the wrong way.